Welcome to the Canucks Hour with Jamie Dodd and Thomas Dranitz. The game underway with Kurt Fraser dumping the puck into the Calgary zone and tips the green right in front. This is where Vancouver talks Canucks. Ten seconds left. Marcus Nassau to the net. Stop. Scores! Scores! Matt Cook! Cash it in! Messer passes back through the middle for Pedersen off the bench. Took it off a broken stick and scored! Pedersen on the backhand elevates it over Peter Morazic. And the Canucks win! On the official home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. The Canucks get a much-needed win in Chicago, and now they set their sights on a first official meeting with the Seattle Kraken. It's the Canucks Hour here on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd, and joining me, as always, he is the senior writer for The Athletic covering the Vancouver Canucks, a man who needs no introduction, but I'll give him one anyways, the one and only Thomas (laughs) Strance. Strancer, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing well, Jamie, although... You know, last night, uh, or maybe it was the night before, but short Shorthouse was grinding me. We don't have a Shorthouse call <laughs> in our lead-in. So uh, I don't mean to bring this up on air, but we might need to change wow. that up. Oh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that Shorty listens, first of all. So thank you for that, Shorty. I'm, I'm going to... Uh... I'm going to do just the classic, you know, CYA move, and I'm going to throw that responsibility onto Cam Barra, right? He, he's the one who put that <laughs> intro together. So, so Barra, if you're listening, Shorty has officially requested a, a signature John Shorthouse call in the, in the intro. I love it. I love it. No problem with that yeah. whatsoever. Uh, should mention that the Canucks Hour is brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Like a manager finding their team the right pieces to win. Avenue Machinery will stop at nothing to find the machinery you're looking for. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. Get your text in. 650-650 is the Dumber Lumber text message inbox. We always want to hear from you. And look, the Canucks get a 4-1 win against Chicago on the road. Crisis around this team that was brewing temporarily averted at least. And there's lots to dig into from the game. But, Drancer, I think we should start, you know, We set it up yesterday on the show talking about the kind of bounce back performance that that we wanted to see, that we know fans needed to see to kind of start rebuilding their confidence in this team. We talked a lot about the effort needed, the character, all of those sorts of things. So I'll just put it to you very simply. I mean, did they meet that bar last night in Chicago? I mean, I don't think it was a team level like everyone running through a brick wall type response, but you're not going to get that usually in game five of the regular season. Anyway, I read an awful lot, however, into some of the guys that were clearly leading in terms of grabbing the rope. And, and the fact that it was Tanner Pearson, right? Tanner Pearson with a 45 second net front battle that ultimately leads to him scoring his first of the year and the game winning goal. Like to me, and I wrote a piece on it at the athletic. You can go check it out. It's called You Have to Get Dirty Sometimes, How a Net Front Battle Helped the Canucks Avoid an Early Season Crisis. Uh, you know, really dives into that. But the thing that I take away from it in particular, and we talked about this at length, like the departure of this team's competitive spine, like the bubble team in 1920 losing characters, big personalities like Tanev, Markstrom, Toffoli, and the impact that that had. You know, they re-signed Tanner Pearson, part of the logic of that deal, a deal which I think you know, reacted in the time at the time and, and still think will probably age inefficiently. Like part of the reason that they resigned him though was for that moment, was for, you know, 
the team being challenged and him being among the guys that responds and leads the way. He did that for sure. That Horvat line probably had their best game of the season against Chicago on Thursday night. I read an awful lot into that, to be totally honest with you. Yeah, it wasn't a masterpiece win by any stretch of the imagination, right? This is not a win where you look at it and it changes your conception of the team or the roster, right? Like, you you don't come away from that thing, oh, wow, I I didn't think they had that kind of game in them. Not at all. But still, you get the two points on the road, and the effort was at least far greater than what we saw in Buffalo, right? And the performance was far greater than what we saw in Buffalo. And, you know, Travis Green addressed it in his media availability after the game, right? Because we all heard what he had to say after the loss against the Sabres, and it was kind of uncharacteristically sharp and pointed from Travis Green. And and last night, I thought he really made an effort to go out and say, you know, all those things I was complaining about in Buffalo, we did them against Chicago. And obviously there's, you know, at least another level for this team to hit but if they didn't pass the test with flying colors they certainly passed it right they got a, a an acceptable grade got the two points <laughs> and and you can kind of avoid the doom and gloom scenarios which would have you know come right to the forefront if they had turned in a repeat or even just a slightly better performance than they well, did against w- buffalo we often love report cards at the Athletics, so you're calling them the C plus. <laughs> it's Canucks, but yeah. spelt with a C plus. Is a B, um, a B yeah. minus, maybe, maybe a B minus, <laughs> but yeah, some, somewhere in there. Yeah, okay. I mean, I think that's about right. Like, you know, one of the biggest differences though comes down not to effort, but to Quinn Hughes being in or out of the lineup, right? And that was a really scintillating performance from Hughes. I thought I was wildly impressed with everything I saw him do on the ice last night. The difference he makes is just mammoth, like can't be understated. And, you know, f- for me, though, when I look up and down the lineup and, and sort of think about who had a good game, who was pulling on the rope, who responded to the challenges that Travis Green threw down on Tuesday and at Wednesday's grueling practice, you know, I don't think it's a really long list. And so, you know, this was a two, big two points, narratively speaking. For all the reasons that we went into on the program yesterday, they kind of needed this win. I think it settles an awful lot down in our marketplace, uh, our our occasionally touchy marketplace, uh, for better (laughs) or for worse. And yet, yet, you know, I don't know that it was in sort of a emphatic way, the the full-blown, you know, um, gorillas out of the cage (laughs) type response that perhaps perhaps, uh, Green had been trying to stimulate. In yeah. his charges. Uh, occasionally touchy is certainly certainly one way to refer to the uh, Vancouver hockey market. Uh, 650-650, keep getting those texts into the Canucks hour here on Sportsnet 650. What was your reaction to the Canucks 4-1 win in Chicago? You mentioned Hughes. I completely agree. He was excellent last night. Certainly didn't look like he was missing a step uh, after missing the game in Buffalo. But I want to double back just quickly. You talked about Tanner Pearson's effort kind of setting the tone for the Canucks, especially on that goal that he tipped in off the Quinn Hughes point shot. That line in general, I, I do want to spend just a few minutes talking about it because I thought it was their strongest effort of the season. And, you know, we had, when we were kind of game planning and, and, and theorizing what Travis Green might do to mix the lineup up, one of the things we thought was, okay, put the lot of line together, which he did. And then go with Bo Horvat, Tanner Pearson, and Niels Hoaglander together because that's a line that's had success in the past. And right now, you just need to use things that you know can work. Well, instead, he left Connor Garland there. And it paid off because that was a really strong performance from that line. I thought Connor Garland had another really good night. And, 
you know, Garland's such an interesting player. He he play he has a unique style. Like already through five yeah. games, we've gotten a handle on that, right? Like he does not do things like everyone else does. You even saw it on his empty net goal, right? Like I've never seen somebody skate the puck in <laughs> quite like that. And it feels like it was maybe the right call from Travis Green, recognizing there's something here with this trio, but maybe Horvat and Pearson just need a little more time to gel with Garland because he is such a unique player. He is. And I loved the jig, like his arms swinging like a jig, like he was doing some sort of uh, like dancing to some sort of cease shanty as he ran, skated the puck (laughs) down ice for the empty netter. But yeah, I mean, when you and and I watched that shift, the shift that ended up in the Pearson goal at length, because I was cutting video for it last night. And I was thinking to myself, you know, because there's this sequence where there's a normal puck battle and then Garland brings it out of the out of the scrum. And he just kind of starts doing that one-man cycle thing he does that's just so odd. Like, and, and I don't mean that negatively because it's super effective. It's just that I, I can see why, you know, his line mates, guys who've spent a lot of ice time with straight-line players over the years or more limited bodies, guys like Louis Erickson, guys like Jake Vertanen, you know, would sort of take some time to figure out exactly how to support Garland when he's off marauding in circular motions <laughs> by himself and, and, you know, also figuring out where to be to find soft areas of the ice for him to get the puck into, right? Like it made sense to me all of a sudden that this would take some time. And perhaps that's why this line has been kept together the way they have. I mean, perhaps that's a, a, an explanation. Like it's going to perhaps take some chemistry just to figure out how to read off of Garland when he has the puck and also figure out exactly how to get him the puck in areas where he can maximize the effectiveness of some of the weird stuff that he does. So, yeah, I mean, I liked that line's game, though, but I do think it will take a little bit more time to gel. And and honestly, they should probably get 10 to 15 games to see how it works. Yeah, there's definitely something there, right? And it's not – they were very effective last night. As they go through that gelling process, it's probably not always – going to look like that. You're right on that shift that led to the Pearson goal, though. I mean, even just before he gets it to Hughes, Garland makes a really clever little play to bring the puck off the boards mm-hmm. and kind of attack the middle of the ice, and that that opens things up for Quinn Hughes to get the shot off. There's clearly a lot of upside with that unit. We saw what it can look like, and, I mean, I don't think that's the best they can possibly look together, right? I think there's another level yet for them, but it, it is just interesting with the – the kind of uh, idiosyncratic nature of Connor Garland's game. You can understand why That's well put. It, it took a little bit of time for that trio to really mesh like a lot of people were hoping they would. Uh, all right, it's Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. You mentioned uh, Quinn Hughes a little bit there, Drancer. I know you've got a lot more to be- say about him and Elias Pettersson. We do it every day at this time, so let's go. Let's get to the point. Here's a good idea. Hughes shoots for the line and scores! Quinn Hughes for the left point! Have a point. Oliver Eggman Larson from the top of the point. It makes it so much more interesting for the listener. Quinn Hughes with a bullet for the point, and the Canucks get a power play goal. Let's get to the point. We all know the result. The Vancouver Canucks won. But it wasn't always pretty, and it wasn't necessarily fun to watch. It also wasn't an unqualified response game, a fully-fledged, high-effort bounce back from the Tuesday debacle in Buffalo or the grueling, challenging practice on Wednesday. Still two points is two points, and for this team, that two points mattered. An early season crisis of confidence in this market, one we suspected had potential to lead to a complicated welcome for the Canucks in Tuesday's home opener, that has already been averted. 
Optimistic fans might even want to know, and with reason, that Vancouver has put themselves in position to have a strong trip here. Win, win on Saturday, return home with seven points in six games? No, not too bad, especially considering consecutive regulation losses to Detroit and Buffalo in the meat of the trip. Of course, that will take handling the emotion of the Kraken's franchise home opener and coming away with a victory on hockey night. That's hardly a sure thing, even if the Kraken sea monster has more closely resembled Pixar's Luca than they have Jaws in the early going. If the Canucks are going to do that, if they're going to string together some wins here, what's become apparent, as if it wasn't already, is that all roads to the Canucks meeting expectations this season, well, they flow through the team's best players. They flow through Quinn Hughes and Elias Pettersson. Now, Hughes was stellar on Thursday night, brilliant at times. Perhaps his greatest trick, though, was how sorely his absence was felt earlier in the week against Buffalo. And yet, for all that Hughes' one-man breakout machine was hopping in Chicago on Thursday night, for all that he generated, drawing penalties, running Blackhawks four-checkers into the officials, netting the primary assist by walking the line beautifully on Pearson's game winner, he was underwater by just about every relevant underlying metric. Now, his partner, Tucker Pullman, has made a strong first impression in Vancouver, And he had a strong game defensively, especially in the game's final moments, blocking a key shot. But watch for the subtle puck handling errors, the failed keep-ins and missed passes, or the inability to hit an attacker more than 10 feet away on the rush. Those are the signal that while he's performed admirably so far, over the long haul, I do wonder if he might take too much off the table offensively to be a long-term fit as Hughes' caddy. Not that they have any other options. Nonetheless, Hughes was cracking, and he's been cracking, at least when he's healthy. Elias Pettersson, meanwhile, well, it's a work in progress for the lotto line. I don't think that's any secret. I actually thought they did okay as a trio on Thursday in one facet. While they didn't score five on five and they got outshot two to one, at least there were parts of their game that began to grind into gear a little bit, and and in particular that forecheck. It's a signature forecheck for them, and at least the work rate was there. Like, at least they were hard to break out against. Now, a key part of what they do well is they combine – that forechecking game with a precision precision passing game and a confident assertiveness in terms of their finishing. They're a quick strike line. You turn it over, it's in the back of your net. Well, that's a trademark of the lotto line that we've yet to really see. But for anyone wanting to suggest that Pedersen's effort hasn't been there, if that might have been fair on Tuesday as it was for a lot of Canucks players, it certainly isn't for me after last night. Now, I bring up Hughes and Pedersen together because, honestly, to this point in the season, it feels like their absence from training camp has more than any other single factor, shaped this club's uneven performance out of the gate. Hughes has been more Hughes-like than Pedersen has been Pedersen-like, but that's no surprise, at least not to me. Hughes is the natural. He's born to skate all day. And yet, Hughes has been dealing with a lower body injury. And there's been a lot of questions, like, did Hughes get hurt because he played too much? Hold the coach accountable! It's a little ridiculous to me. I know people always want somebody to blame, but injuries happen. Any big minutes player is going to be at greater injury risk because of their role. Any big minutes player wants to play those big minutes. And any player that misses camp is going to have to manage their body a bit more closely than one who doesn't. You can't bubble wrap star players in this league. I'm sorry. It's just not how it works. As for Pedersen, if Hughes is the natural, he's the savant. Like, he's a precision instrument built of all-consuming intelligence. Like, forged from obsession. At his best, he's like Big Blue. He's solving problems with an inhuman, almost logarithmic ruthlessness. We saw on the Brock Besser assist that that ability to vivisect an opponent with a moment of skill is there. But that was his first point of the season that wasn't the result of Carter Hart being, well, Carter Hart. 
And it was that five on three. Those moments haven't been there consistently for Pedersen just yet. That's no secret. And I can promise you as aware as you are of that fact, as aware as we are of that fact, Pedersen is 10 times more conscious of it himself. That's how his perfectionist mindset functions. He sees the opportunities, even the ones he misses. And he's harder on himself, expects more from himself than any fan or media analyst or armchair GM criticizing his game right now does. It's a tough go for a player like Pedersen to shake off the rust after going almost eight months between high-octane professional games. Honestly, it might take him a bit more time here. And that's time that the Canucks don't really have, Jamie. Between Vancouver's two superstars, and yes, they are superstars in this league without question, lie this club's playoff hopes. And long-term, any ambition of accomplishing something serious beyond that. The team hasn't quite stumbled out of the gate, but they haven't been anywhere close to a sprint yet. On the zombie speed rating, like they're falling somewhere between the comical stumble of Sean and the dead zombies and the terrifying pace of the 28 days later undead. And when you consider the state of their best pieces so far, a mild zombie jog out of the gate, well, it's really not much of a surprise. So here's my hot take, and it's yours too. If this team is going to do anything, is going to make this season count, is going to realize their ambitions, getting those two fully firing and soon is everything. The whole story. Until that happens... Honestly, can we realistically expect much else from this team aside from them holding the fort a bit inconsistently? That's to the point with Thomas Drance here on the Canucks Hour Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. Get your thoughts in 650-650 to the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. And, and Drance, I'm glad you chose to zero in on Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes. I mean, we were talking about it. Quinn Hughes, he was good last night. Not not one of his best games by any stretch of the imagination that he's played in the NHL, but a really solid performance from him. Elias Pettersson, as you said, we're still waiting to see even that level. And I thought the lotto line, you know, they had their moments. They had their moments last night, but they also had a lot of moments where they were ineffective and ineffective in a pretty uncharacteristic fashion, right? Getting, getting hemmed into their own zone. But I'm glad you brought up Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes as a duo, because when we talk about the Canucks, right? And, and you know, in this market, whether you're a fan, whether you're in the media, whatever your role is, we obsess and pour over and analyze everything to do with the Vancouver Canucks, right? And, and, you know, we opened the show talking about the second line and Bo Horvat and Tanner Pearson and Connor Garland, right? And we'll do a deep dive into the penalty kill and who's going to suit up on the fourth line and how they complement each other. But there are moments where as much as interesting as I find all that stuff and as important as it is to the team, it everything other than Quinn Hughes and Elias Pettersson Sometimes it feels like window dressing, right? Like sometimes it feels they're so important that they just dwarf everything else going on with the Canucks. And it's not to say that nothing else deserves attention, but that's how important they are to this team. That It almost feels like if you're not talking about them constantly, you're missing the real underlying story with the team. Yeah, and, and that's part of being a top-heavy team. I mean, they've worked to flesh out the depth of this group, and yet you lose Quinn Hughes... And, you know, the engine kind of doesn't start, right, in terms of getting the Canucks out of their end. Uh, Pedersen's not at the top of his game offensively, and the power play and the five-on-five attack that the Canucks can generate looks off, like looks flaccid, right? And that's, you know, I mean, it's it's a problem, but at least it's a problem where at some point he's going to get going. He's too good. Like, it's a problem that at least has a relatively... A straightforward solution it's it's just a matter of time 
the, the question is how much time do the Canucks have? Because they really do need a good start, especially considering the relative softness of their schedule out, out of the gate versus how difficult it's going to get down the stretch. It's magnified with Pedersen, too, because it feels like obvious, and this is obviously the case, but if he's not at his best, then you're not getting the most out of whoever you're playing with him, right? And and this is a team that, yes, Elias Pedersen and Quinn Hughes, they're number one and two or 1A and 1B, whatever you want to say, in terms of importance, but this team is also relying on its kind of secondary stars and its other core pieces like, you know, Brock Besser and JT Miller to have really good seasons. And I don't want to say, you know, the lotto line was ineffective last night because Elias Pettersson is struggling. Like, all three players bear responsibility. But it, it does feel like until Elias Pettersson gets back to the level we're used to seeing from him, you're not going to see the best from Brock Besser. And you're not going to see the best from JT Miller either, right? Like, that unit needs Pettersson at the top of his game. So, it's kind of the flip side, right? You always talk about, okay, what what does a star player do? Well, it makes he makes everyone else around him on the ice better. And that's kind of we're seeing the flip side of that with Elias Pettersson right now right where I feel almost like Brock Besser and JT Miller they can't be at their best because Pettersson's not quite at his best just yet yeah and I mean I think you're right I think it's more though a trio thing and like this line has outscored their opposition by 27 plus over the past two years when they've been on the ice together, right? They've been one of the best two-way lines in hockey. Like, that's a high standard. You know, it's not like they're getting ventilated for goals against right now. It's just that we're used to them being, you know, up there with the perfection line in terms of two-way results. And and that's a ridiculously high standard to hit when you're a 21-year-old who missed camp and is coming off of a significant wrist injury, you know, and, and didn't play competitive hockey for eight months. Like, that's... That's a big ask. It's a big ask. And yeah, like for me, obviously all three guys are part of the equation, but we all know, we all know who drives that line. Like we all know that it fundamentally comes down to the centerman, that it fundamentally comes down to the guy who has potential to be one of the top pivots in this game. And so, yeah, it's, it's a high standard that he's judged against when he's working through the rust and settling into this season uh, but that's, you know, for, for like, that's for whom much is expected, right? <laughs> that, like, that's the, that's the yep. crown he wears. That's the burden he bears as this team's, you know, best forward. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see how he works through this and when he works through this, uh, because it is inevitable that he will. It's just that, you know, it's certainly something that's being talked about a lot and fairly. He's not been the usual dynamic presence that we've become accustomed to over the past two years when he's been in the lineup. Uh, Canuck Nation, Abby Texan, don't be too hard on Pedersen. He will be just fine. Slow start, no worries. His skill level will shine through. And uh, that's ultimately where I land on this as well, right? Like, you're always going to be, there's always going to be that fear in the back of your mind if you're a Canucks fan, right? When Elias Pedersen has a slow start because he is so pivotally important to the team's chances. But the rational side of you has to understand, you know, as the texter says, he, he is just too talented, too driven, all of those things. Eventually, he is going to make an impact. The concern for me is more, how long does it take, right? Because, you know, already just in the first week of the show, Drancer, we, this is something we've talked about a lot, is 
this team has thin margins to make the playoffs, right? And it's one thing to have a, a slow five games from Elias Pettersson at the start of the year. It's a much different thing to have a slow, you know, 15 games to start the season. And I'm not suggesting that's inevitably what it's going to take, but those are two kind of competing ideas, right? Yes, of course, you know, it, it's early still. It's a slow start, all of that. But he also kind of needs to get going in a hurry, as you said, you know, this team had a, a, a relatively easy six-game road trip, as easy as a six-game road trip can ever be, at least, to start the season. You know, they missed a couple opportunities in Detroit, in Buffalo. Now they come home, or they're going to come home after that game on Saturday for an extended, you know, for lots of home games over the next little bit. It's a chance for them to really do some damage. But to do that, they need to have Elias Pettersson at his best. Yeah, no, no question. And, you know, he's started slow before, but... When Pedersen gets going, you know, we're talking about a point-per-game guy who drives play. And, you know, the underlying stuff's not really there yet either. He's he's not yep. deeply in the red, but it's not as if this is a snake-bit player. Like, the, the rate at which we're seeing those five-alarm scoring chances that, you know, the lotto line generates when they're on, you know, like, that's been absent. And, that, and that's sort of what I'm waiting for, waiting to see. Uh, the good news, at least out of last night, like the one positive that I took out of last night is that at least the work away from the puck began to feel familiar. It was just that the precision of the passing game, the way that they worked to capitalize off of the turnovers that they generated, and they were generating a fair few. Um, you know, there, there was a sequence where Pedersen picked off a pass and then did a drop pass to Miller, and it got passed around a, a little bit more and not even a shot on goal resulted, right? And it's just like in, in years past... It's like two, three passes, and at least you're generating something that stresses out the goalie. You're putting the opposition under duress. That's sort of the the part of their game that I'm just not quite seeing yet. I think that'll grind into gear, and once it does, then the Canucks will be cooking with oil. It's just a matter of how long can this team afford to wait. It's the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, myself, and Thomas Drance from The Athletic, senior writer covering the Canucks, with me as always. And uh, Drancer, you'll be happy to know that loyal texter, Church of Pedersen, he's on your side with your Elias Pedersen take. He says, thank you, Drancer, for bringing reality to the fans' expectations of Elias Pedersen. Lots more to get into, including on the Quinn Hughes side of things, who he's playing with, who he could potentially be playing with. More discussion about the defense as well. Keep your text coming in, 650-650 to the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. We'll look ahead a little bit to Saturday's tilt with the Kraken as well. That's all coming up next. It's the Canucks Hour on Sportsnet 650. 15 seconds left. Canucks need to hurry. Welcome back to the Canucks Hour on Sportsnet 650. He settles it down. Throws it over the goal. Stop by Pino. Pino, they score! It's Brock Besser at the side of the net! And the Canucks have come all the way back to tie the game! Once again, here's Jamie Dodd and Thomas Drenz. What is going on? Welcome back to the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650 with myself, Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drantz, senior writer for The Athletic covering the Canucks. Joining me to co-host, as always, Canucks Hour is brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Like a manager finding their team the right pieces to win, Avenue Machinery will stop at nothing to find the machinery you're looking for. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. And I realized I'm going to be like doubly or uh, triply in trouble with Shorty uh, Drancer, you mentioned off the top that he was uh, a little perturbed with you the other day that we don't have any short house calls in the opening intro to the show. And I realized we also don't have any in the rejoiner there coming back for the second segment. And 
even in the little stinger for to the point, your daily rant, we don't have any shorty calls there. So that that's really, you know, we've done something wrong. We'll have to find a way to work a short house call or two in there. Yeah, I explained to Shorty that he just doesn't mention the clock enough. Like, everything we do is about the clock. It's about the hour. So just to bring up time more often, and we'll and we'll help him out. Well, um, but, yeah, I mean, he'll get over it. And, and I, I, I put together – I'm not the, worried uh, about Short House. No, no, no. Well, I, I, you know, <laughs> look, you, you got you to gotta try to make friends in this industry. But uh, I um, – <laughs> I put together the sounder for To The Point, and it's all it's all point shots going in, right? So I think they're all batch calls, and it's all him saying, you know, Quinn Hughes from The Point, OEL from The Point. I looked at a lot of old uh, Sammy Sallow goals, right? Most of them featuring John Shorthouse right. calls to try to find, like, a great Sammy Sallow bomb from The Point. And by the way, like, we don't have to get off on a digression here, but what a player. Sammy Sallow is amazing. No, we Anyways. should. Let's, let's absolutely get off on a digression. <laughs> he was Sammy Sallow, so, Sammy so Sallow. Yeah. What a warrior. Just yeah. the best. He was awesome. But anyways, in those calls, and, and it's the difference between TV and radio, right? Like on radio, Batch has mm-hmm. to say from the point because the radio listener can't see where the puck's coming from. Shorty doesn't have to say that. So even on these calls, you know, he's saying, oh, what a blast by Sallow, but he's not saying the key word from the point or whatever, right? So ah. that, that's why a Shorthouse call did not make it into the uh, to the point <laughs> sounder. We, we, need a, we need a why Shorthouse was snubbed segment. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't. I, I don't know it. if that will be an acceptable uh, an acceptable answer for him or not. But there you go. Anyways, <laughs> that's a little uh, peek behind the curtain into how it got put together. Six fifty, six fifty is the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Lots of great texts coming in. Keep them coming. And a couple have come in about something that I noticed as well last night. Pablo from Montreal texts in. And by the way, shout out for listening all the way from Montreal, Pablo. We appreciate it. He texts in. Myers has been really good to start the season. Is that OEL working some magic? And then we have another unsigned texter who texts in, I just keep being pleasantly surprised with Myers and OEL. Even when they make mistakes, they've been quick to recover, where I feel like Myers just didn't have that last year. Instead, he would just take a lazy penalty. And you know what? Watching the game and, and making my notes last night, I find myself I found myself when I was taking notice of Tyler Myers, it was for positive reasons, right? He, he, he made a lot of sharp offensive plays. He didn't get burned defensively. He even had, you know, his signature Tyler Myers play where he's defending a two-on-one and he, he lays out his entire six-foot-eight frame on the ice to try to cut off the pass. He did that, and it worked. <laughs> he didn't get burned for it. He, he intercepted the pass with it. So I thought it was a good night for Tyler Myers. We talked about OEL a little bit earlier in the week, Trancer, but another strong night from him, too, I thought, last night. Yeah, I mean, Myers has been the unluckiest Canucks defenseman in terms of the defensive results. Like, goaltenders playing behind him right now have a 867 save percentage. Uh, that'll go up. So if Myers is standing out to you for the right reasons and he's been unlucky, I mean, I mean that's a decent reflection. Now, overall, I think Myers basically is what he is, right? Like, Myers is a, yeah. a you know, sort of competent middle pair guy who has slightly more offensive impact than defensive impact and actually, you know, has a negative defensive impact, which is why we never see him play with Quinn Hughes, right? Like unless the Canucks need a goal, right? Hughes plays with Pullman or, you know, they, they do what they can to keep Myers out of shutdown roles. And, and I think as a result, you're seeing some, um, you know, decent work from him, right? Like he, he's been pretty consistently, a top pair guy, never in terms of where he's positioned in line rushes, but in terms of the minutes he logs, right? And right now, he really is like fourth among Canucks defenders in even strength ice time. 
And I think there's a trickle-down effect from that that perhaps, you know, creates a more favorable, like an environment more favorable to his skill set. That would be sort of my big Myers takeaway to this point. Yeah, the usage with Tyler Myers has always been fascinating from the coaching staff. Because you're right. I mean, he comes in with a $6 million salary ticket. And then, you know, as you say, in line rushes, he's always slotted on what would be the third pair. And there's kind of this, oh, my goodness, a $6 million guy on the third pairing. But then, as you said, he ends up getting his minutes one way or another. And just with the dynamic of how the Canucks defense pairings are put together, it, it really does drive home, you know, whatever you think of Travis Hamanick as a player at this point in his career, his absence puts them in a little bit of a bind as they're assembling their defensive units, right? And, and you know, you no talked question. about you talked about the pairing with Tucker Pullman and Quinn Hughes in your To The Point editorial in the first segment and how maybe it's not always the cleanest fit. And, you know, we all know what the plan was initially, right? The plan was to have Quinn Hughes and Travis Hamanick play together and probably Tucker Pullman and Oliver Ekman Larson slot in as the true shutdown pairing, right? And now, you know, Tyler Myers is with OEL, probably having to play tougher minutes on a more regular basis than the coaching staff would like. And you have Tucker Pullman with Quinn Hughes. And, you know, as you alluded to, that's not necessarily the best fit for Quinn Hughes' game. No, and, and I, I do believe that. I mean, I just think that ultimately what you want is a guy who is defensive or in their orientation, like a defensive minded right-handed defender to play with Hughes. But you want a guy, I think with just a little bit more offensive pop because Hughes has such an impact in terms of shifting the gravity of the game whenever he's on the ice. And you want a guy who can help retain that possession, perhaps a little bit better than Pullman can and help capitalize just a little bit more often on the offensive chances that you do generate, you know, Hamannick's not like a high-end offensive guy, but you know, there there's a skill set there in terms of you know finding the trailer, in terms of making a long pass off the rush, in terms of retaining possession on in-zone play. Uh, those are all skills that Chris Tanev had too, even though Chris Tanev historically, over the course of his yeah. career, had a bit of a negative offensive impact on the players that he played with. Um, you know, it, it's hard to find defensive defenders that don't take a little bit off the table because if they weren't those players, they'd be stars. Yeah, they'd be right? superstars. Like that's, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so I mean, this you know, I don't want to I don't want to undersell how difficult it is to identify these players. Nor do I want to overstate the fact that the Canucks really don't have any other options right now but to roll Hughes Pullman and roll OEL Myers. But you know, I, I do think it's a, a bit of an incongruous fit. And, and I do think that's going to become more evident. Now, one last thing here that's a little bit of a surprise to me after the first, you know, week and change of the season. Like, when you go look at deployment, the Canucks have clear, you know, four guys who've clearly played third pair minutes, yep. and two of them have only played one game in Shen and Hunt. But Rathbone and Burroughs, you know, they're clearly third pair deployment. You've then got Pullman, Ekman, Larson, and Myers. And between the three of them, they are only separated by 57 seconds on a per-game basis at 5-on-5 five five exclusively. So not even counting even strength because that's where Hughes has played a ton at 3-on-3, three three, and his edge would be even larger if we, if we included that. But just isolated to 5-on-5, five five, those guys are all within you know, a minute of each other. And then Hughes has played 90 seconds more on average on a per-game basis than those three guys. Like, the extent to which... In his third season, as a 21-year-old defender, Quinn Hughes has emerged un as unquestionably their number one guy. Um, you know, not, not that I didn't know that, but the extent to which it's played out so far in the early going this season to me, the extent to which his absence was felt, I think 
that has become cemented as a pecking order, perhaps earlier in his NHL career than I thought it might. Yeah, it, it's been noticeable. It's been very, very noticeable, that dynamic, as you said. His, his clear standing at the top of the pecking order and his, important, his importance to the team. And, you know, just as we kind of work through the puzzle of the Canucks defense, right? So they, they, they have not any – since Tyler Myers has been in Vancouver, the Canucks have not wanted to play him on a permanent basis with Quinn Hughes, right? We see it when they're chasing the game, when they need a boost of offense sometimes, but that has never been – option one and for understandable reasons right when you look at the deficiencies Mm -hmm. in both of their games and particularly from Tyler Myers you get why that's not an option now we had a couple people text in about this one says you have you guys haven't even got to old reliable Kyle Burrows Kevin and Victoria also text in imagine if Burrows didn't emerge as a legit bottom pair option he's the other right-handed guy do you ever consider, if you are looking for a cleaner fit with Hughes, moving Burrow up to, Burrows up the lineup and trying him next to Quinn Hughes for a stretch? Oh, boy. I don't know. I mean, I've been really impressed with Kyle Burrows. I loved the fight last night. And, and you know, I, I have some perspective on this fight that's a little bit different just because, you know, I know Riley Stillman pretty well from my Florida days. And yep. he was, like, one of my favorite people to work with. Just the absolute best kid. Hard worker. Super easy to work with, extraordinarily polite, just a lovely guy. And Burroughs, so Burroughs kind of jumps him after he charged Hoaglander twice, right? And if Stillman hadn't been such a stand-up guy and realized that he did need to answer for the second hit, you know, I thought, I think Burroughs could have got the instigator. Like, I thought it was a little bit poorly timed, but Stillman being like this warm-hearted guy that I know is like, yeah, okay, and obliges him. I I loved that moment because it was just so Stillman. Like, it was so, you know, to a T exactly who that guy is. But I loved that Burroughs stepped up in that moment. I think the fact that Burroughs isn't, you know, your first choice fighter made it all the better. And he's been really good. Like, he's been really quiet in terms of his overall game, and that's exactly what you want from him. Now, talking to a lot of talent evaluators around the league, a lot of people like Burroughs' understated game, like within the industry, and see him as really good depth, but it's pretty hard to find evaluators who think that he's an everyday player. Uh, now, in my view, Burroughs is exactly the type of guy who, if he was two inches taller, right, would, yeah. would have played 250 NHL games as opposed to 350 AHL games in his career, right? Um Unfortunately, he's not that guy. And so if you're playing Quinn Hughes a ton of minutes, the way the Canucks are, that means he's playing a ton of minutes against heavy, skilled lines, right? And over time, I think if you're putting him with a guy like Burroughs as opposed to a guy like Pullman, right, a six foot four mobile defensive guy who, for all of his warts, has been really effective defensively this season for the Canucks, right? I, I do wonder if that would hold up. And the fact that, you know, the Canucks have taken the approach that they have, the way that Burroughs has been deployed as a pure third line guy or third pair guy, excuse me, suggests to me that the, the Canucks coaching staff has already sort of given their assessment uh, of where Burroughs slots. But that doesn't take anything away from what Burroughs and Rathbone have done as a pair together. I mean, that pair should stick together. Like, there, there's no reason for that pair to be broken up until injuries or you know, truly lackadaisical performance forces the matter. When they've been on the ice together, the Canucks have controlled play well. And that's a that's a good weapon to have in your back pocket. Like a third pair that doesn't surrender much against bottom six competition and just sort of moves the river in the right direction. Like that's that's useful, especially for a team that has some lines that are still finding their footing. 
and some depth players that perhaps aren't the most offensive to have some guys who help you in the territorial battle, even in protected minutes on your third pair. Like that's a, that's a pretty useful thing and not something that the Canucks have necessarily been able to rely on probably since the days of, you know, Chris, Chris Tanev and Keith Ballard or something like that. Right. Like it's been, it's been a while, Aaron Rome and Sammy Sallow. Like it's been a while since they had that type of third pair. Um, You know, it's early, but this team's looking like it might have found something like that in Rathbone and Burroughs. Well, and that consistency with Burroughs and Rathbone, I mean, we talked about this with Vasily Podkolzin, right? The importance of giving a young player a certain consistency with, with whoever he's playing with, with role, with minutes, all of that. You know, Jack Rathbone's in a similar position. He's a rookie. This is his first full NHL season. If you have a pairing that's working together the way it is with Rathbone and Burroughs, I, I agree with you. I would be reluctant to break that up. And, and by the way, just before we move off of the, uh, the Burroughs fight with Stillman, I do have to get this in because right off the top of the show, Jordan, the People's Canucks fan, texted in. Uh, the Burroughs fight was a difference maker for me. Something you dorks with the analytics won't acknowledge. So there you go. That, that discussion. <laughs> I, did, for- I acknowledged it. <laughs> that discussion was just for you, Jordan. So I, I, I yeah. hope you enjoyed it. Uh, it's the Canucks Hour here. No, I'm sure <laughs> I, didn't. Pro- sure I promise you, it didn't. didn't. Hey, yeah. by the way, can I bring up uh, one other texter? Texts in and says, "Does Quinn Hughes reaching 100 points quicker than any other defenseman in 28 years put him a notch above Makar?" So Hughes reached 100 points in 133 games, right? Makar has played 102 games or 103 games in in, the, in around there, low hundreds, and has 95 points. So yeah. Makar is going to beat this Hughes record in a week. Yes. Like in a week, Makar is going to beat this record and he'll have done it in like 27 fewer games. So no, the answer no. is no. The answer is no. Makar is somehow, <laughs> we, we got to get to more conduct stuff, but just before we do, yeah. Makar is somehow still slept on, which is wild considering the numbers he's putting up. Like people still don't quite grasp exactly what it is he's doing but yes to answer the texter's question no the Quinn Hughes reaching that milestone does not put him a notch above Kale McCarr okay Canucks hour here on Sportsnet 650 final few minutes and there's a guy we haven't talked about yet that really stood out to both of us in that win last night I'm sure he stood out to a lot of listeners as well and that's Niels Hoaglander and man I still remember the surprise when they opened training camp in January last year, that Niels Hoaglander was skating on the second line with Bo Horvat and Tanner Pearson. And everyone's saying there's no way that's going to last, but everything he's done since then has justified that confidence. He was a bright spot in an otherwise dismal season for the Canucks last year. And he's just picked up right where he left off. He has been fantastic to start the season. And I thought he was a standout again last night for the Canucks. He's been their best forward. Like, just just let that let the truth of that statement wash over you. Niels Hoaglander has been the Canucks' best forward through five games this season. I, I don't even think it's that close. Like, is there another forward who you can put on any other line and that line will immediately become the Canucks' you know, like best play driving line. You know, yeah. I don't think so. Not not right now. Not with Besser and Pedersen still shaking off rust. Not with, you know, Miller off to the start he's been off to. Um, same goes for the three forwards, all super talented on the Horvat line. Like Hoaglander's the guy you can put anywhere. And all of a sudden that line starts to do great stuff. And, you know, it, it's pretty remarkable. Like by every single underlying metric, he's been Vancouver's best play driver and and that matches the eye test too you go look at the first goal that the Canucks scored like it's Hoaglander give and go through the neutral zone with Myers then another touch between him and Dickinson then he goes to the wall and he 
has it. He does it again. Another little give and go with Matthew Highmore, except this time Hoaglander wins a board battle so decisively that Highmore's guy has to cheat off him. Come to Hoaglander. Hoaglander finds Highmore. Highmore makes a good play, but like it's a play with a guy who was checking Dickinson, leaving Dickinson to check Highmore, and then and then the puck's in the back of the net. Like that goal, even though Hoaglander gets the secondary assist on it, was driven by his work. Uh, it's really impressive. You know, during captain's practices before the season, I was hearing from Canucks personnel, like people within the organization who wouldn't get into why they thought this, but they said, you know, Hoaglander is about to have a big year. Like yeah. this guy, this guy, watch for this guy. And, you know, I, I, I was sort of picking at it. Like, why? What is faster? Is he bigger? Like, did he have a good summer? Like, why are you saying this? And then just trust me, just this guy's going to have a big year. And we've seen it like he looks faster. He looks great. And to this point, honestly, for me, I, I mean, I think he's been Vancouver's best single forward, not their best third line forward, not their best depth guy, not their best guy. Who's not named Pedersen, not their best guy. Who's not making 5 million or more simply put their best forward. And it's that ability to elevate line mates. That's really jumped out for me. Right. And you know, it's one thing to do it when you're riding shotgun with veteran productive NHL players, right? Like Bo Horvat and Tanner Pearson, what he was, what he did last year, that was still very impressive, but okay. You're also being put in a pretty favorable position with those guys. You know, you look at how the lineup got mixed up going into that game and the lotto line being reunited meant that Niels Hoaglander drops down to the bottom six. And it means he's playing with two guys that you don't, don't associate with offensive production, right? In Jason Dickinson and Matthew Highmore. And it, it's easy to look at that going into the game and say, you know, I get why Travis Green's doing it, but that's a tough spot. That probably neuters Neil Ho- Niels Hoaglander a little bit. And instead, he turns that into a dangerous line pretty much all night. They were going in the right direction. Yep. Like, he has Matthew Highmore out here making plays in the offensive zone, being aggressive. Highmore had other chances, too, in addition to the pass that he set up for Jason Dickinson to score the goal. Like, they created scoring chances throughout the night. That's a rare ability, right? Not just to do it when you're when you're in a really favorable position with good line mates, but to be able to elevate guys who are not known as offensive threats and be dangerous all night long, that's so impressive. And I, I think when you lay it out like that, like he's the only guy who's done that consistently so far, right? Like scoring chances no and puck possession have followed him throughout the lineup. And when you look at it like that, I think he pretty much has to be their best forward so far. Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, I do think, too, Hoaglander was given top six opportunity and he kind of stayed there. And he started at a running start where everyone else was starting from a standstill last season. He played in the fall. Everyone else was dealing with a pandemic offseason that extended past December, right? But he stayed there all year. And, you know, if the team had been deeper, uh, maybe maybe he would have spent some nights lower down the lineup. Maybe he would have even been scratched here and there. Like, he didn't necessarily sustain what he did in the first 20 all year, even though, on the whole, it was a fantastic season but I do think Hoaglander's emergence not just through last season but now after a full relatively normal offseason and training camp coming in and doing what he's done right out the gate does pose some interesting questions too for how the Canucks should approach developing Vasily Podkolzin in the NHL Podkolzin of course was a healthy scratch for the first time yesterday in Chicago Um, you know I've called on this program our very first show for him to have a more consistent role I don't really have a problem if he's scratched like once on a six game road trip that starts the season. But, you know, if that becomes a theme, 
I do think there's going to be some very difficult questions for the organization to figure out in terms of how do we ramp this guy up so that he's one of our nine best forwards by February or so. Because based on skill, based on form, based on what we've already seen in terms of what he can do one-on-one with that shot, with that work rate, I think there's no question the goal has to be to get him there for the second half. Yeah, you would you would love to have another Niels Hoaglander in your lineup. That's for sure. And that's a, a very, very high bar to clear with what Hoaglander is doing right now. As we said, pretty much the Canucks best forward and certainly a guy who can elevate any line he's put on at this point. But it's it's an interesting comparison. And and the question of how to even approach that level, how can the Canucks help Pod Colson approach that level? You're right. That's gonna be a major underlying story for this team all year long all right we didn't get a lot of chance to touch on it but the canucks will play tomorrow they have the day off today no practice or anything they will play tomorrow of course against the seattle kraken in seattle seattle's very first home game as an nhl franchise the stakes for this one drancer you know a lot lower after that win against chicago right like it could still be humiliating if you get blown out but even if it's just a close loss i don't think people are going to be uh, fretting too much about that in that game in Seattle. And I should also mention, of course, tomorrow, of course, we will have the call for you. Puck drop is at seven. We also have a ton of Canucks content leading up to it. The Canucks warm up second edition ever on Saturdays with Chris Faber and David Quadrelli. That goes from three till six tomorrow. The official pregame show of Sat and Bick is at six o'clock. So make sure you tune in all day long to get set up for the Canucks and the Kraken. And speaking of Bick, he's up next as well. Sportsnet today with Bick and Israel Fair will get going at noon. Drancer, awesome first week, buddy. I had a blast. We'll yeah. be back on Me Monday, too, bud. 11 a.m., doing it again. Enjoy the game on Saturday, everyone. Thanks for listening. Thanks for texting in. You've got it on the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.